For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. There's four cheese, cheddar, Munster, Gruyere, and a touch of Pecorino. I'm liking the look of um, La Mancha, which is a taste of Spain right at your fingertips. Flavorful Manchego cheese, accented by fresh fennel and onions. Delicious. Cajun has andouille sausage, green pepper, onion, celery, garlic, and of course some genuine Cajun seasoning. There's quite a variety here. Yeah, what do you want? I don't know. Oh, you can get a sampler. Done. You might not think that there are so many options of macaroni and cheese available, but there are, and it's glorious. But all these varieties, are they really mac and cheese? Surely the real mac and cheese comes in a blue box. Well, that's got to be a somewhat recent invention, but the real mac and cheese is certainly American, right? Or maybe not. I mean, pasta is not originally American, I do know that. But you don't find mac and cheese on the menu in Italy, so where did this dish come from? And how did it get boxed up and fed to children all over North America? But also become a staple of soul food and the centerpiece of Sunday night dinners for African Americans around the country. All this and a few tips for the perfect homemade mac and cheese of your own. This episode is a special sponsored episode. It's been brought to you by Undeniably Dairy. They're celebrating the people who are not only devoted to dairy, but devoted to creating connections. Find out more at undeniablydairy.org slash devoted. So I think of macaroni and cheese as a very specific dish. I think it's different from other kinds of pastas that have cheese in it. It's a specific thing that has bechamel, it has cheese, and it has elbow macaroni. You know, it's thick and gooey and oozy and you you know you just have these little noodles that also I mean it reminds you of childhood. This is Alison Arevalo. She's the founder of Pasta Friday in Oakland and she has a new cookbook that's coming out in 2019. She is also a bona fide mac and cheese expert. I was the co-founder of a mac and cheese restaurant in Oakland, Homeroom, that served 12 different kinds of mac and cheese, lots of homemade desserts and fresh side dishes. And yeah, I owned Homeroom for seven years. So mac and cheese was my life for a very long time. Allison had been dreaming for a long time about opening a restaurant. And then she and a partner decided mac and cheese would be their focus. When we were building it out, I... Almost everyone that I told, including my parents, was like, you're really going to build a restaurant that only has mac and cheese. Like, what are you, you're crazy. What are you thinking? People suggested she could also serve pizza, maybe even burgers. And I was like, no, it's going to, like, it's mac and cheese. We will have desserts. We'll have some side dishes. But that's the thing. And everyone really thought that that I was crazy for even considering this. But then when it opened, we had lines down the block every night for years. You know, it was 
really way more popular than than I ever even thought. Her customers came multiple times a week. They brought their prom dates. They proposed marriage there because everyone loves a good mac and cheese. Yeah, people are really just um, drawn to it. They're drawn to the feeling they get when they eat it. It's really, it's a celebratory food too. You eat it when you're celebrating birthdays or graduations. It's comforting if you're going through a breakup or, you know, lots of people come if they have someone who's sick or in the hospital, they'll, they'll pick up mac and cheese and bring it to them. For Alex, Allison, mac and cheese feels like a universal, one of those things that everybody loves. But there's one particular group of Americans that claims it as their own. Uh, Mac and cheese is so ingrained in African-American culture and soul food that, believe it or not, there are African-Americans who believe that we invented macaroni and cheese. So they think it's something that white people stole, just like rock and roll. Yes, we did actually steal rock and roll. But did we steal mac and cheese, too? That is something we're going to investigate this episode with the help of an expert. Yeah, I am Adrian Miller, the soul food scholar, and my tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. Adrian wrote a book about soul food. It's called Soul Food, and it has chapters on fried chicken and black-eyed peas and candied yams. I wasn't planning to include macaroni and cheese in my book because it has such a clear European provenance that I didn't think there was a unique African-American angle But I got so much peer pressure from my uh, African-American friends, uh, really threats that they were going to slap me upside the head if I didn't include it, um, that I just buckled to peer pressure and included it in the book. So Adrian bowed to his friend's insistence and dug into macaroni and cheese. And he realized it truly is deeply ingrained throughout African-American culture. Because even though soul food is cast as this monolithic thing, there is a lot of regional variety between how soul food ingredients are prepared you know, whether they show up on menus or not. But mac and cheese is one of those constants that you see anywhere you go in the country. And just like at Allison's restaurant, Adrian says there's a mac and cheese for every occasion in African-American culture, from the humble convenience meal to the competitive potluck mac and cheese or the more luxurious version you save for Sunday night dinner. You may have three or four cheeses there. You're going to have some rich ingredients. You may have a little meat in there. Uh, You may have some more vegetables, you know, something that's going to be kind of over the top that takes more time. You'll probably save that for a Sunday dinner, a family reunion or funeral or any other kind of uh, occasion that calls for you to rise to your you know, magic abilities as a cook. So all Americans think mac and cheese is theirs. African-Americans think they particularly of all Americans own the dish. And it's also Canada's de facto national dish. A bold claim there from a Canadian. Sasha Chapman is a journalist based in Toronto, and in an article for The Walrus magazine, she made a strong case for mac and cheese really being Canadian. Canadians eat more craft dinner than any other group of people on the planet per capita. Craft dinner is Canadian shorthand for box mac and cheese. Sasha's not done with the list of reasons that Canada can claim the dish. She also pointed out that James Kraft, he's the guy whose company is practically synonymous with macaroni and cheese, he's actually Canadian. He grew up on a dairy farm in Ontario and with $65 in his pocket, made his way across the border to Chicago and decided to invent processed cheese. This mac and cheese ownership debate seems like precisely the kind of mystery gastropod should wade into and make even more confusing before potentially solving. 
What do you say, Cynthia? I think we're up for the challenge. But the first thing to do is to figure out where the dish originally comes from. Meals don't usually spring forth from someone's mind like a totally new invention. This dish had to have origins somewhere. So, macaroni, that's Italian. Shall we look to Italy? Allison is Italian-American. Her great-grandmother was born in Italy. So, my great-grandmother used to cook me this dish. It's like sad to say how often I ate this because it was one of the only things I wanted to eat when I was a kid. But it was long noodles. It was spaghetti that had butter and Parmesan cheese. And she made it a certain way and it was all I wanted to eat. And it was so good. And it wasn't mac and cheese. Nope. It turns out that if you travel around Italy, you are unlikely to find anything like mac and cheese. Allison's own great-grandmother would never have made mac and cheese. So when Allison opened a mac and cheese only restaurant, she loves cooking shows and she always watching the Food Network. So she knew what mac and cheese was and she knew that Americans love mac and cheese, but she didn't understand why I was doing it. <laughs> She's like, really? She's like, well, but what about my recipes? <laughs> You know, aren't you going to focus on like any of your Italian recipes? I'm like, well, not this time. Cacio e pepe. That's a classic cheesy Italian pasta. And it's delicious. But it's not mac and cheese. It's not creamy enough. That's because it's just grated cheese on pasta. And then the starch in the pasta water helps the cheese form a sauce. Because you can't just grate cheese onto pasta and get that super creamy sauce like you get with mac and cheese. Yeah, I mean, if you try to melt it straight onto the pasta, you're going to get clumps. It's not going to uniformly melt into a sauce. I mean, if you add some of the, the pasta water, the cooking water, it'll help a little bit. But it, it'll be grainy. It'll be clumpy. It's not. It won't be a uniform sauce. This cacio e pepe style emulsified pasta water and grated cheese version of a cheese sauce, it's actually much closer to historic recipes for cheesy pasta. The earliest recipe we know of so far is from the 1300s. It's a Neapolitan cookbook called Liber de Cocina, and it's a recipe for squares of cooked pasta that are sprinkled with grated cheese. The next earliest mention comes from England. It was a cookbook published in the late 1390s um, called The Form of Curry, and that was the go-to cookbook for the Royal Court of England. And in that book, the recipe is pretty much just boiled pasta, butter, and Parmesan cheese. I'd eat that, but it's not mac and cheese. It definitely would not be the mac and cheese that you think of when you think of like the comforting mac and cheese. To make that, you need something called bechamel. The bechamel is really what holds it all together. It's what makes it creamy. A bechamel sauce starts with a roux, which is flour and butter and hot milk. So when you're making the roux, first you want to melt the butter, and then you cook the flour into the butter. When you do this, the flour particles swell. This makes the mixture thicker. And those flour particles also get coated with fat. And this keeps the fat in the butter, or eventually the cheese, from clumping up. But what also happens is the long starch molecules in the flour, they rearrange themselves. Some of them cross-connect, making the sauce even thicker. Some of them split into shorter chains, so it's less quick to congeal on the plate. It's truly a beautiful thing. So you keep whisking, you slowly adding the milk a little at a time, whisking, whisking, and then the bechamel will start to form. And as you keep cooking it, it'll get thicker and thicker. So now you have a super smooth, thick sauce, and this is the perfect base. Now you can add in cheese. And you want to do all of this over low heat. If you add the cheese and you have it over high heat, the cheese is really, it's going to get super grainy and it just, it just won't taste very good and it won't look very good. The, the sauce will start to separate. So you want to do it over low heat, melt the cheese, and then add the pasta, and then you mix it all together. And then often you put it in the oven and bake it, maybe with some crispy breadcrumbs on top. Mm. They do have bechamel in Italy, but the pasta dish you mostly find it in is lasagna. 
There isn't a standalone bechamel cheese noodle dish on most Italian menus. So it seems like mac and cheese isn't really Italian. But where is it from and how did it come to take over America and Canada? To find out, we need to go to Switzerland. But first, we want to tell you about our sponsor for this special episode, Undeniably Dairy. Whether you love it for its delicious taste or its simple, nutrient-rich ingredients, it's no wonder so many people are devoted to dairy. Dairy is the milk in your hot chocolate, the cheese in your family's secret recipe casserole. It's there to help you savor some of the most special moments. Undeniably Dairy celebrates the people who are not only devoted to dairy, but devoted to creating connections. Like Emily Hunt-Turner, she's founder and CEO of All Square in Minneapolis. All Square is a civil rights social enterprise, and we are centered on a craft grilled cheese restaurant, as well as a companion uh, professional institute. So our primary uh, aim is to invest in and empower formerly incarcerated individuals. Emily did not start out as a chef or a restaurant owner. Yeah, I well, I, I practiced as an attorney for the Department of Housing for five years. In her job for the Department of Housing, Emily saw that formerly incarcerated people have an incredibly difficult time getting housing. What was continually coming up was that whether it's private or public housing providers, there's generally been sort of blanket policies across the country saying that if you have any sort of criminal record, you know, even if you've been out of prison 10 or 15 or 20 years, that, you know, you're not able to to live in the, the units available. But these kind of housing policies are not the only way we make it hard for people who have a criminal record. And these kind of obstacles made Emily angry. We say that people have paid their debt to society and we say we want them to turn their lives around. Yet when we're looking at all the different policies and practices that we have in place as it relates to health care and housing and finding a job and getting, you know, getting a, a credit card or a, access to a loan or access to just a line of credit generally, it's really almost impossible. And uh, to me, it feels a little bit like a, a double standard. And, and I've seen it impact the lives of people that I really love. So Emily decided to do something about this. That's how All Square was born. All Square, it means people have paid their debts to society. But also, All Square for the shape of a grilled cheese sandwich. Half of our enterprise is centered on a a grilled cheese restaurant. And in conjunction with the grilled cheese is a professional development institute where the 13 fellows that we have on board now are going through a 12-month curriculum focused on on law and entrepreneurship. I like grilled cheese and I like social justice, but I don't necessarily see the connection. But for Emily, grilled cheese was the natural choice for her restaurant. The short answer for a grilled cheese for me is it is genuinely in the same way that pizza has always been one of my, since I've been a kid, and one of my very favorite cuisines. And I always did have sort of, I'd, I'd heard of grilled cheese only restaurants before. And I did have this sort of fleeting notion, man, that would be so cool to to run one of those because I just love, I could eat grilled cheese every day. And Emily found that grilled cheese is actually the perfect food for what she's trying to do. Which is, first of all, to run a successful restaurant that puts money in the pockets of the formerly incarcerated people working there. But also to invite the community in to talk about the issues. And so I think the grilled cheese has come in as this really sort of accessible and sort of almost an equalizing cuisine where I don't know anyone from any, you know, regardless of of their ethnic background, their cultural background, um, their economic background, I don't know anyone that doesn't enjoy grilled cheese. You know, I think that grilled cheese has become a way to really not only cut the sort of intensity and temper it a little bit, um, it kind of just brings a delightful 
joy to people's faces when we talk about it. At Emily's organization, they're having hard conversations, conversations about justice and forgiveness and finding a way to move forward with your life. And, you know, I think for I think for me, there is sort of a, I don't totally know how to put it in words, but I think that there has been something so special about um, seeing the grilled cheese on the grill, seeing them plated, seeing people sort of pull their four squares apart. That has really, in a way, been, um, it's almost like an adhesive. You know, it's almost like something that's that's sort of gluing us all together, despite the fact that we all might have really different perspectives and, and different lives and different backgrounds. Emily launched All Square this autumn. You can learn more about Emily and All Square and other dairy devotees using dairy to create connections as well as real enjoyment at undeniablydairy.org slash devoted. Thanks to Undeniably Dairy for sponsoring this special episode. So back to macaroni and cheese. We've decided Italy probably isn't the source of the creamy goodness, but Italy has a neighbor that seems to be a more likely suspect. Switzerland. Specifically, the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland, which, to be fair, was Italian for big chunks of history. Some parts belonged to Lombardia for a long time. On the other side, uh, there were parts of Italy today, which belong to Switzerland. So it was always a mix and, uh, and coming and going with recipes, products. Paul Imhoff is the author of a series of books on Swiss food. For the books, Paul created an inventory of typical Swiss dishes, and there was one in particular that you find on restaurant menus and in homes all over Switzerland. It's a dish called Alpler Magrone. Alpler Magrone, that is Alpine Herder Macaroni, the macaroni dish for herders who live in the Alps. You cook pasta. Then uh, in some parts together a little with some uh, potatoes, you send, then you give the, uh, the pasta in it, macaroni or macarone. You cook them with uh, onions, you give cream in it or not, or butter, and then cheese. The Swiss typically serve this heavy, creamy, carby delight with some applesauce. But otherwise, it sounds a lot like mac and cheese. And it goes way back in the history of the Swiss Alps or the Italian Alps. The oldest recipe we found is uh, in in the cookbook of uh, Maestro Martino, which is a famous cookbook in Italy in the um, Middle Ages. And uh, this man came from uh, today, Swiss Alpine Valley, Valle di Benio. At that time, it belonged to one of the dukes in in northern Italy. Maestro Martino, a Swiss guy who cooked for an Italian duke in the 1500s, he described making pasta with a tube in the middle and then mixing it with butter and cream and cheese. So actually, you have really a base of this uh, macaroni and cheese or or apple macaroni. So this sounds a little bit closer. And in fact, the curvy tubular shape of the pasta itself, the elbow shape we associate with macaroni and cheese, Paul says that seems to have come from Switzerland too. So maybe the original mac and cheese is alpine. Like Italian food redesigned by the Swiss for hungry herders with a lot of cream and gruyere. This seems a little more convincing, though of course it's not totally 100% settled. Historians, let us know if you come up with anything new. In any case, by the late 1700s, a creamy, cheesy, mac and cheese style casserole was popular in both England and France. That's where one of our founding fathers encountered it. So Thomas Jefferson is credited with bringing mac and cheese into the United States, and apparently he brought it back from France. Yeah, so Thomas Jefferson gets a lot of credit, but that's really not true. Uh, If you look at manuscript 
cookbooks in the United States even before Jefferson's time, people were serving something that was uh, similar to macaroni and cheese uh, in their households. They often called it macaroni pudding. But um, what you find in that time period is a lot of wealthy Americans who go visit Europe get exposed to the dish and fall in love with it and bring it back. Thomas Jefferson was just one of these wealthy Americans who fell under the mac and cheese spell. He was introduced to it while he was living in Paris as minister to France in the 1780s. Then when his time is up as minister of France, um, on his way back to the United States, he actually instructs some of his underlings to smuggle a macaroni maker from Europe back to the United States. Because at that time, the Italians had macaroni making on lockdown. So he had a serious mac and cheese Jones. Jefferson may not have been the first American to fall in love with this dish. But to be fair, it's not really a myth that he introduced it to America. After all, he had a little more influence than most people. Apparently, he served macaroni and cheese in the White House. Although not all his guests appreciated it. Take a gentleman named Manasseh Cutler, who came around for supper on a February evening in 1802. He shows up to dinner and he just really didn't know what to make of mac and cheese because he's just never experienced it. So he thought the pasta noodles were giant onions. And uh, he wrote in his diary later that it was disagreeable and had a strong taste. So I'm not sure what Jefferson's cooks put in that mac and cheese. And in fact, he had to ask the guy sitting next to him at that dinner to explain what the dish was. And the person who explained it to Representative Cutler was Meriwether Lewis of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. We're not sure whether Representative Cutler ever became a fan, but during the early days of mac and cheese in America, this is also when it starts to become an African-American dish. Because just like with Thomas Jefferson, the rich white people who loved the dish were not the ones who made it. Typically, uh, in the, especially in the big houses of the large plantations, uh, enslaved African-Americans were the ones doing the cooking. So that's probably where most uh, African-American cooks got their expertise. At this point, African-Americans were not enjoying the mac and cheese they prepared. But even after emancipation, it was a dish that was reserved for special occasions. Early on, macaroni and cheese was a very expensive dish because you had to use a certain type of pasta that was made with a certain type of wheat, and Parmesan cheese was hugely expensive. Parmesan came from overseas. Durham pasta wheat did too. But over time, American farmers bred and grew wheat much more cheaply here. And they started to make more and more cheese, and that started to come down in price too. So then uh, this very expensive dish becomes much cheaper and starts to become accessible to a lot more households. But the ingredients didn't just become cheaper. They started changing into something more American. So cheddar cheese replaces the Parmesan cheese. Cheddar cheese is a pretty popular variety here in the U.S., but there's another change afoot for the cheese, and this is where the Canadians come into the story. So James Craft grew up on a dairy farm and began working as a clerk in a little general store near Lake Erie. And he noticed that often the cheddar cheese that they would get into the store was would start to mold. It would um, go off. I think he describes it as being marketed in a state of extinct virtue. This is at the end of the 1800s. Canada produced a lot of cheddar. It was second only to timber in the country's exports. But it was apparently a fairly unreliable product in terms of quality. And James Craft moved across the border to Chicago with only $65 in his pocket and a determination to do something about that. He decided he wanted to create a much more shelf-stable product. You know, at the time, few people had refrigerators. It took a lot longer to deliver foods from 
farms to cities. And the cheddar would arrive not so delicious. So to create cheddar that wouldn't go bad, Kraft figured out a way to basically sterilize the cheese. His first patent was in 1916, and it described a method for melting cheese and cooking it long enough to kill the microbes, and then stirring it quickly as it cooled with pasteurized milk. Then he could seal the whole thing up, and it'd last much longer. Later, Kraft improved his process, incorporating a discovery made by a couple of Swiss inventors. Yes, back to Switzerland again, to make his cheese product even more stable. And the way to do this was to use emulsifying salts like citric acid and phosphate, which would allow the processor to exchange the calcium in the milk proteins for salt. And salt, of course, is a preservative. And this new processed cheese lasts forever. American cheese is born. But you've probably guessed, I mean, his name is Kraft, you've probably guessed that this is going to come back to macaroni and cheese. So there was a salesman in St. Louis who was selling pasta and decided to start taking Kraft grated cheese and attaching it to boxes of pasta with a rubber band. And this is how he sold it to consumers in St. Louis. This was during the Depression. People were working long hours. They were looking for cheap ways to feed their families. And the convenient marriage of macaroni and processed cheese fit the bill. Well, it was so popular that the Kraft Company caught wind of this and decided to start marketing it themselves. So Kraft Dinner was introduced in 1937. This is the story of how that little blue box of elbow pasta and powdered cheese, this is the story of how it came to be. Kraft began selling boxed macaroni and cheese, and they've never stopped. This is also how it became more of an everyday dish for the poor, and among those poor were African Americans. And so it transitioned from uh, something that rich people ate on occasion to something that was more common during the week. In fact, mac and cheese became something that relief agencies advocated as a good way to stretch your food dollar and meet your family's nutritional needs. You have that, and then you have the school lunch program, which incorporates macaroni and cheese as well. So there's all these different angles high and low, where mac and cheese becomes part of the African-American diet. Today, macaroni and cheese can still sometimes be what you make to get you through to the next paycheck. And if you are somebody who uses a food bank, it may be a symbol of poverty. It may be a symbol of what happens at the end of the month when you have to crack open those boxes and eat yet another night of craft dinner. But that's not all mac and cheese is today. The boxed version can be convenient and appealing, even to someone like Allison, who made gourmet versions of mac and cheese for a living. You know, I have two young boys at home, I have a four and a six-year-old, and they love it both ways. And I remember someone, a friend of mine came over and I was, I have a whole drawer full of pasta in my house. And I also have two boxes of the box mac and, mac and cheese in there. And he opened the drawer. He's like, are you kidding? You have box mac and cheese? I'm like, I have young kids. I can't, I don't always have the time to make them the fresh mac and cheese if they want it. And sometimes they really love the boxed one. So yeah, so I have it. The box is cheap. The box is quick. And the box is also kind of a blank slate for self-expression. Sasha didn't grow up eating boxed mac and cheese. She has a super crunchy granola mum who made everything from scratch. But she still remembers her first encounter with the box mix fondly. I do. So it was in first year university and I was in residence and uh, somebody had a box of Kraft Dinner and, and made it for me. And then it became kind of a a mark of pride for people to 
doctor up the craft dinner and turn it into something gourmet and, you know, add a bit of Dijon mustard, add some salami to it, you know, add all sorts of other things to turn it into something special. This is just what I did in my early 20s. I'd add small pieces of broccoli and hot sauce to boxed mac and cheese to make it into a meal. I mean, add-ins are half the fun. Mac and cheese is definitely something you don't have to be a purist about. Allison developed dozens of different versions for her restaurant. We wanted to have all different kinds of cheeses and all different kinds of add-ins. There were a few that were always on the menu. We always had a Mexican mac on the menu, and that one had um, chipotle peppers and chorizo and lime and cilantro. And one of the other ones was a goat cheese mac, and that was like a lighter, also more like sophisticated mac and cheese. That one always came baked with breadcrumbs and it had a drizzle of olive oil and, and thinly sliced scallions inside. That one was also really great. Not all of these creative mac and cheese varieties were hits. It, like it sounds great when it's in your head and then you make it, you're like, oh, that was that was terrible. Let's not do that again. You know, we did one that had um, like bacon and gruyere and caramelized onions. And it sounds like that would be delicious, but it is so sweet and just it was not not good. But mac and cheese, other than a few misses, it's nearly always good. And Allison nearly always wanted to eat it. Um, There were definitely days that I did not want to eat mac and cheese anymore. I'm like, oh, my gosh, especially like recipe testing days. I'm like, I cannot look at any more mac and cheese. Um, But yeah, it was still a dish that I loved eating that I would love, you know, coming into work and I would order mac and cheese for lunch. And, you know, like I, I didn't really get bored of it. Um, but yeah, it's just, I don't know. It just had this special place in my heart that I just, I don't know, couldn't give it up. That's just it. Mac and cheese has a special place in North American hearts even when it's hard to digest. And this is why it's actually surprising that it's such a mainstay of African-American Sunday dinner. Well, I think it's an outlier because of the cheese element. You don't really find a lot of cheese in African-American cooking in the traditional sense. And I I think that a lot of that goes back to kind of um, West Africa. Uh, What I found in my studies is that there's a higher incidence of lactose intolerance with people of African heritage, uh, particularly West African heritage. Eating something that creamy, that cheesy, when you can't digest lactose, that's dedication. So mac and cheese is for sure African-American. But it's also American in general, and Canadian, and kind of Swiss. And everybody claims mac and cheese and loves the dish because it's more than just noodles and cheese sauce. It's really kind of about home, community, And again, it was just something that people looked forward to that was not only delicious, but just reminded you of the love that somebody had for you. Thanks so much to Undeniably Dairy for sponsoring this special episode. They're celebrating the people who are not only devoted to dairy, but devoted to creating connections. Find out more at undeniablydairy.org slash devoted. Thanks to Allison Arevalo of Pasta Friday, Adrian Miller, author of Soul Food, journalist Sasha Chapman, and Paul Imhoff. We have links to their work on our website at gastropod.com. We'll be back next week with our regular programming. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. 
Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.